Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. In the continuation of our series, Pastor Rob shares four steps that helps us get closer to the true meaning of Christmas. Let's listen now. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we know that you are God with us. And so, God, as we study your word now, we pray that you would indeed be with us. Make yourself known and make yourself clear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how are we going to get closer to the true meaning of Christmas? Christmas movies try to give us a vision of what the true meaning of Christmas looks like. In fact, Christmas movies are absolutely everywhere. The Hallmark Channel years ago began a custom called Countdown to Christmas. They were trying to uh, push their Christmas ornaments, and so they began on their channel a, a series of movies and specials that would last from one point all the way until Christmas Day. You're not going to believe this, but a lot of them are romances. And most of them have something to do with small-town life, wholesomeness, magic togetherness, joy, hope, those kinds of things. In fact, at one point, Hallmark's Countdown to Christmas was so popular, they began it before Halloween. Now, this year, all of the streaming services are getting involved. All of the streaming services have their own Christmas movies, their own classics, their own specials, their new material, because as it turns out, we are looking for something wholesome and hopeful in entertainment. But is small-town romance and a happy ending the true meaning of Christmas. Well, this year, we are studying John chapter 3, verse 16, to try to help us understand the true meaning of Christmas. John 3, 16 is the most recognized verse in all of the Bible. And John 3, 16 doesn't tell us the Christmas story, but John 3, 16 tells us why Jesus came to this earth, and it tells us what happened as a result of Jesus' life and death. And so John 3.16 helps us to get closer to the true meaning of Christmas. We began this journey of exploring John 3.16 last week with the first part of the verse. It says, for God so loved the world. And we said last week that we need a more robust concept of God. He is our eminent, close friend. He is our almighty king, our righteous judge, and the transcendent power. We talked about the world. And we said we need a more realistic understanding of the world because the world is the place that God created, but that is in rebellion against him, which brings us to a dilemma. How will God handle the rebellion of the world he created? And God's love turns out to be the key to that. God so loved 
the world. And that's where we ended last week. This week, we pick up looking at specifically what God's love looks like. And so this week, we are going to take four steps closer to the true meaning of Christmas, four steps closer to the true meaning of Christmas, because while John 3.16 begins, for God so loved the world, it continues that he gave his only son. And so this week, we need to analyze the identity of the son. We, we need to uh, acknowledge his unique origin. We need to appreciate the full meaning of giving, and we need to explore the joy of getting. And as we do so, we're going to take four steps closer to the true meaning of Christmas. And we begin with step one. Let's analyze the identity of the Son. Let's analyze the identity of the Son. To do that, we have to begin by acknowledging that the Son is not just one child. The Son is not just one child. You see, Jesus is the Son of God, and yet we, if we are disciples of Jesus, are children of God. Because you see, if we become disciples of Jesus, we are adopted as children of God. I, as a disciple of Jesus, was adopted as a son of God. When you began to follow Jesus, you were adopted as a son or daughter of God. And that is where we get the confusion because we discover that in some ways we are all sons and daughters of God. In some ways, Jesus is our older brother in the family of God. And yet, at the same time, we recognize that while he is our older brother, we're not really like him. Jesus is still somehow different from us. The gospel according to John uses language in such a way that is clear to help us understand the distinction because John refers to Jesus as the Son and to us as children of God. For instance, we read in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, that's disciples, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in English, the son is more specific than a child, and the same is true in the Greek that the New Testament was written in. So Jesus is the son. Jesus is unique in that sense. He is not just one child. But Jesus, the Son, we discover in the New Testament, in the Gospel according to John, is also one with the Father. The other Gospel writers remember Jesus experiencing the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus went up onto a mountain with a couple of his closest followers, and while he was on the top of the mountain, he was transfigured. That is, he began to radiate heavenly glory. And while they were there, the cloud of glory, the glory cloud of God the Father descended on the mountain, and from that glory cloud, God spoke. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, we read, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
Now, Jesus makes it very clear in the gospel according to John that he has a very close relationship with the Father. God the Son and God the Father have a very close working relationship. In John chapter 5, verse 19, we read, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. But Jesus goes farther. Jesus tells us that not only does he have a close working relationship with the Father, but when we have seen him, we have actually seen the Father. In John chapter 1, verse 18, we read, no one has ever seen God, the only God, that is the word of God, Jesus the Son, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, Jesus is the beloved son of the Father. He, he learns and he takes his actions from the Father. They are close in cooperation. They are one with one another of one essence. Jesus is one with the Father. And we discover also that the Son, that is Jesus, is the one God sends. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, we read, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And so there we're discovering again what this is all about. It is the content of the love of God. Out of godly love, God sends the Son into the world. The Son makes manifest among us the love of God. God sends his only Son into the world, and we have the opportunity to live because of him. So Jesus is the Son, not just one child. He is one with the Father. He is the one God sends into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son we need to analyze, we need to know who Jesus is. That's step one to getting closer to the true meaning of Christmas. Step two is let's acknowledge the unique origin of Jesus. Let's acknowledge the unique origin of Jesus. The Greek word monogenes helps us to understand the unique origin of Jesus. Now, I recognize using Greek words is about like using formulas in physics. It means everybody quits listening for a minute. So I want to draw you into this. I want you to see on the screen in Greek and transliterated into English the word monogenes. Monogenes, on your right, you see the Greek version of it on, on, the, on your left. And then on your right, you will read the English transliteration of monogenes. Can you actually say that with me? I'll say it, and then you say it. I want you to know this word, at least for these five minutes. I'll say it, then you say it. Monogenes. You guys at home did a great job with that, I want to tell you. <laughs> monogenes is the word that appears in between what we translate as his and son, his monogenes son. For God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes son. The English Standard Version and a couple of other translations translate that as only, his only son. The 
New International Version translates it, uh, his one and only son. Other translations follow the NIV in this. And the King James Version and several other translations translate it as his only begotten son. His only begotten son. To be begotten means to be generated, to be produced, to be born of. And what we are discovering with this term monogenes is that Jesus is the one, the one and only, the only begotten son. His origin is unique. What does this term monogenes mean? Because it's used multiple times in the New Testament, especially in the gospel according to John. When it's used in other parts of the New Testament, it tends to simply mean the only child. It refers to a parent's only child. But as John uses it, there seems to be something more attached to how he uses this term monogenes. For instance, it appears in John chapter 1, verse 14, where we read, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the monogenes, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This one who is monogenes manifests the glory of the Father, and he is full of grace and truth. John also writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his monogenes son into the world so that we might live through him. The monogenes son manifests the love of God. He comes into the world and we get life through him. So look at everything this monogenes son does. He manifests God's glory. He is full of grace and truth. He comes into the world at the behest of the Father, and we live through him, the one, the one and only, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son's origin is unique. The Son's unique origin is eternal. It doesn't start at a point in time. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we read that in the beginning, the Son had already been generated. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus existed already in the beginning. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus goes further, and he says, I was in the beginning, I am that beginning, and I am the end. I am beyond beginning and end. Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Paul goes further. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul reminds us that Jesus was generated, was, was produced, was born, became, began to exist before anything else. Paul writes, and he, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus' origin is not only unique, but the uniqueness is eternal. There is no time when Jesus was not this doctrine of the unique origin of Jesus is a doctrine that Athanasius of Alexandria spent much of his life fighting to clarify and protect. Athanasius of Alexandria is one of the most important theologians in the first four centuries of the existence of the church. 
He lived during the time when the persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire were ending and Christianity was being established as the state religion of the Roman Empire. He lives in the days when Emperor Constantine himself, the Roman emperor, became a follower of Jesus and acknowledged Christianity empire-wide. During Athanasius's lifetime, he noticed the work of a priest named Arius. Arius's writings were troubling to Athanasius because Arius wrote that Jesus is exalted, but Arius believed Jesus is a creature, the highest creature, but still a creature. He was born, he was made at a point in time, and before that point in time, he did not exist, and he was glorified at a point in time, and before that point in time, he was not glorified. In fact, the saying was associated with Arius, there was when he was not. Athanasius pushed back hard against this and asserted that Jesus' existence is eternal. He is begotten, not made. There is no time when Jesus was not. And this breach over this theological doctrine became so profound that it led to splits in the church and violence in the streets. And so Emperor Constantine called a council to try to settle the matter in the city of Nicaea. And ultimately, that council produced what we call the Nicene Creed, and it produced a formula about Jesus that we take for granted now. And, and from the Nicene Creed, we read about Jesus, that he is begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Athanasius spent his life clarifying that thought and defending that thought, potentially at the cost of his own security and life. Jesus' origin is unique. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have to acknowledge the unique origin of Jesus. That's step two toward the true meaning of Christmas. In step three, we have to appreciate the magnitude of God's giving. Step three, let's appreciate the magnitude of God's giving. You see, God's giving is directed at us. Giving is actually a big theme in the gospel, according to John in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about giving. There was a crowd of people out in the wilderness who were, had followed Jesus and were listening to his teaching, and they were hungry. And so Jesus fed the multitude with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. They ate their fill. They liked eating their fill. Jesus, seeking to continue his mission, left them, but the next day they decided they wanted to be fed again. And so they went searching for Jesus. And when the crowds found Jesus, they asked him, if you want us to believe in you, if you want us to belong to you, feed us again. 
Do what Moses did when Moses fed God's people in the wilderness as they were escaping from slavery in Egypt. Moses fed the people. If you want us to believe in you, you feed us too. Their arguments found in John chapter 6, verse 31, where the crowd said, Our fathers ate the manna, that is the heavenly bread, in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And they were talking about Moses. Jesus had to correct their misunderstanding, though. It was not Moses who gave them bread to eat. It was God. God gave them bread to eat. In verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It's just God's nature. And then in verse 51, Jesus makes clear that the bread from heaven that he's talking about is himself. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. And what we see in John chapter 6 is that giving is always directed at us. God is constantly giving to us. In fact, God's giving shocked the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, we have the account of an encounter between Jesus and a woman at a well near a Samaritan village. It's extraordinary because there is Jesus by a well in the heat of the day. It's shocking because Jesus, the Jew, was in the territory of the Samaritans. And in that day, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. It's a shocking encounter because Jesus, a man, spoke to a woman, and that didn't happen very often in that day either. And the encounter is shocking because Jesus, the Son of God, asks the woman to give him something. In John chapter 4, verse 7, we read, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. She was shocked. She was shocked at him making this request, and she rebuffed him, and Jesus had to respond that this was a mistake she was making. In verse 10, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, the woman was still confused. And she was confused because she, like so many of us, think that the good things that we have in life come from other sources. Looking at the well, she thought about the patriarch Jacob who dug that well. So she gave Jacob credit for the water that she had and wondered if Jesus was greater than Jacob. She says to him in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. Jesus had to correct her as well. Good gifts don't come from Jacob. Good gifts come to us from God. God is the one who is constantly giving to us. And then Jesus broadened the offer in verse 14. He said, I, I give you something better than the water from this well. Jesus continued in verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The exchange continued between Jesus and the woman by the well. They talked about places to worship, her history in life, and she ultimately realized that the one making this offer to her was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what she said in verse 15 summarizes where she ends this discussion. In verse 15, we read her words, and they're important. She says, sir, give me this water giving nature of God shocked the woman at the well. The full magnitude of God's giving, though, really truly becomes clear only on the cross. I cannot imagine what it would be to be God the Father who gave his son to be born into this world to live and to go to the cross. I cannot imagine what it would be to be the father to give his son and allow his son to hang on that cross. What it would be for God the Father for the first time in eternity to turn his gaze away from his son, for the father to cause the full weight of our sin to come crashing down on his son and to pour the the full weight of his divine wrath out on that son-sin combination and to allow his son to die. I can't imagine what it would be for God the Father to give his son. I can't imagine what it would be to be God the Son to give his very life. I can't imagine what it would be to be the son and to set aside the privileges of heaven to come and live on this earth. I can't imagine what it would be to be the son to go to the cross and for the Lord of life to give his life and die for us. Can't imagine what that would be like. And yet, that's where we see the full magnitude of God's giving. And Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where he writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For God, so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have to appreciate the full magnitude of God's giving. And that brings us three steps closer to the true meaning of Christmas. Step four is let's experience the joy of getting. 
this Christmas. Let's experience the joy of getting. A friend shared a classic Peanuts cartoon strip with me recently. It stars Sally Brown, Charlie Brown's little sister. And in the strip, Sally is writing an English paper. And the topic that she's given to write on is the true meaning of Christmas. And so Sally begins, to me, Christmas is the joy of getting. To which Charlie responds, you mean giving. Christmas is the joy of giving. To which Sally says, I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and, and that's Sally Brown. But is there something in what she says for us about the joy of getting? Because you see, the joy of getting helps us to solve the mystery of being born again. John 3.16 happens in the course of a discussion between Jesus and a religious leader, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus with questions on his mind and in his heart, and one of the questions boils down to, how does one get into the kingdom of God? How does one get the kingdom of God? To which Jesus says, if, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And the joy of getting, it turns out, is the key to solving the mystery of what it is to be born again, to be generated, produced, begotten again by the action and the work of God. The joy of getting helps solve that mystery. The joy of getting eluded Nicodemus, because after Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus wondered, what? How does that happen? Does a fully grown adult enter again a second time into his mother's womb in order to be born again? To which Jesus says, really? <laughs> Loose translation there. But Jesus clarifies, and he says, no, that's the birth of the flesh. Flesh gives birth to flesh. What you're wanting is the birth of the Spirit. Spirit has to give birth to Spirit. You must be born again spiritually. But Nicodemus couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. Why? Because for Nicodemus, his faith was all about what he would give what he could give to God in order to get the kingdom of God. He was wired to think, if I want God to give me something, I must give him something. If I want to get the kingdom of God, I must do something and I must earn it. The joy of getting eluded Nicodemus. But it turns out that the joy of getting can lead to being born again. Because you see, Jesus says, we get the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is given to us by God. Jesus 
the Son of God, is given to the world by God the Father. Jesus, the unique Son of God, is given into the world, and the Son of God gives his life in going to the cross and dying to pay the price for our sin. And as he rises from the dead, victorious over sin and death and evil, we discover that God now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, gives to us forgiveness, adoption as sons and daughters of God, new life, sanctification, and eternal life that begins now. Those are given to us as gifts from God, and we must experience the joy of getting those things. As John writes in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we finally understand what he means. But to all who did receive him, who receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The joy of getting can lead to us being born again. And so let's experience the joy of getting this Christmas. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one God the Father has given into the world. Jesus is the one who gave his life to pay the price for our sin. Jesus is the one who offers us forgiveness and adoption and new life and eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's the true meaning of Christmas. And we are now four steps closer to understanding Christmas ourselves. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.